those of you who don't know, my father, Mike Connors, I direct the Martin Program in, in Homiletics here at the University of Notre Dame. It's my pleasure to welcome you tonight. Uh, before we uh, get underway, I do want to say a word of thanks to Father John Herman. Where are you, John? Back here. The rector of Morrow Seminary. A word of thanks to him and to the Morrow Seminary community for uh, hosting this event tonight. We're really grateful for your hospitality. to Father Gary Chamberlain, who's the MDiv director. I don't see him here. Oh, Gary, sorry. There he is. And to Stacy Noam, the director of lay formation. Thank you all for making, helping to make this evening happen. Uh, allow me to briefly introduce our speaker. Dr. Deb Morgan comes to us from Minneapolis, St. Paul. She lives in St. Paul and works in Minneapolis. Uh, she holds an MDiv degree from Harvard, the Doctor of Ministry in Preaching degree from the Aquinas Institute in St. Louis, and most recently, the Master of Social Work from St. Thomas. St. Thomas in St. Paul. Uh, in addition, she has taught homiletics in a few different places, and uh, I should mention that. Um, among the things that she does, she's a pastoral associate at Holy Rosary Parish in Minneapolis, where she has a, a counseling practice and works very extensively with victims of trauma in that practice. That's very relevant to the topic that she will be speaking on tonight. As most of you know, Deb is the 2016 Martin Visiting Fellow in Homiletics. Please welcome our speaker, Dr. Deb Orton. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. And good evening. I'm glad to see some familiar faces out there. It's really a privilege and a pleasure for me to be here with you tonight to talk about something that really matters to me. I really am going to ask you tonight to listen carefully so that once I'm finished with the presentation part of the evening, we can have a really lively dialogue. This is a work that I want to continue. And I'm counting on you to be conversation partners with me tonight, to lead me in some new directions. Are you up for it? Yes. That's impressive, given that we all just finished a really nice dinner. Okay. It was August 3rd, 2016, an ordinary day in St. Paul, Minnesota. Angela Martin, mother of two and grandmother of six, was driving east on I-94, the main highway through town, when she saw a young woman climbing the fence at the Dale Street overpass with the clear intention of hurling herself into the heavy traffic below. Martin raced up the exit and ran across the overpass to where the young woman was. Lord, help me, she said in that moment. I see her as one of my own. No, honey, don't do this. Martin pleaded with the woman. And the young woman kept saying, my mom don't love me. My mom don't care for me. We love you, Martin said. And she wasn't the only one who felt that way. Other motorists stopped on the bridge and approached the fence. The young woman turned toward traffic and let go of the fence. Just seconds before, though, Martin had reached through the fence, grabbed the young woman's belt, and her t-shirt and hung on. She clung desperately and soon others put their arms through the fence and grabbed onto the young woman in any way they could. Martin yelled to a passerby to stop traffic. 
this tiny little woman ran down to the highway, grabbed one of, you know, those giant orange construction drums, rolled that puppy out onto the road and screamed at the traffic to stop. It worked. Traffic stopped. A truck driver even backed his huge rig, huge tall rig, back up under the bridge to break the young woman's fall if it came to that. Meanwhile, police officer Vlad Krumgant was heading with his partner west on the highway, it's his real name, okay, and saw a woman dangling over the overpass, held up by a giant mass of people. He called for backup and raced to the overpass too, where he joined the people holding the young woman up. Lucky Rosenblum, also his real name, was half a block away and from a distance saw what looked like a lone police officer surrounded by a chaotic crowd. He was thinking the worst and thinking he had to help this cop. When he got there and realized what was happening, he moved in to relieve one of the people that was getting tired of holding on to the young woman. He grabbed the woman under her armpit. She was sweaty, she was slippery, he said. Everyone was determined that we were not going to let go of that young woman for any reason. Another police officer arrived and got a bolt cutter from his car. He began to snip a hole in the fence. Then, said Officer Krumgant, we collectively pulled the woman back through. That is the hole in the fence. When I read this story, that I've adapted from the one elegantly reported by Mary Lynn Smith of the Minneapolis Star Tribune. My intuition told me that the scene on the bridge had something to say in a metaphoric and perhaps allegorical way about how preaching and trauma are connected. Ever since then, I've been working to establish just exactly why I immediately went there. Tonight, I invite you to accompany me in beginning to sketch out the implications of this story as a metaphor for witnessing to the intersections of trauma, church, and preaching. I invite you to three foci within this image. The young woman, the group on the bridge, and the life and practice in community that the image suggests. These are three overlapping pieces of the same picture. I chose to focus tonight on these partly because I live in their intersection as a mental health clinician and theologian. I see God revealed all the time in the lives of the people I work and minister with. And tonight, I'll begin an articulation of just what I see. Most importantly, I adopted this focus tonight because trauma is part of and impacts our individual, ecclesial, social, and political life. Back to the story. First, the young woman. Let's call her Elizabeth. As a mental health clinician, I try not to diagnose anybody that I haven't sat with in a professional capacity. 
There are a number of different reasons why she might have been on that bridge that afternoon. She might have been depressed in the chemical imbalance causing her unbearable distress. But the fact that she kept saying to Angela Martin and to all the people around, my mom don't love me, my mom don't care for me, suggests that she might have been living out of a very old narrative. For the purposes of this presentation, I'm going to presume that Elizabeth was on the bridge because trauma was part of her life and her experience. And also for the purposes of this presentation, I'm going to define trauma as the reaction to traumatic events. People can have a lot of different reactions to traumatic events. Not everyone is traumatized by traumatic events. But the reaction of trauma is a reaction that negatively impacts the present. Events that by the, the eruption into the present of events that are not always accessible to the conscious mind. Someone who's traumatized carries within them, in their, in their bodies and in their bones, the traumatic event, and not always in a way that they can access it. So when I talk about trauma tonight, I'm talking about that reaction. At a minimum, Elizabeth is living out of experiences that disrupted her life when they happened and which continue to disrupt her life in the present through intrusive memories and thought patterns. She is, in a concrete way, living the past in the present. Are you with me till there? Okay. One thing that trauma does is completely turn upside down any concept of linear memory. The past intrudes in the present in such a way that the person is robbed of the present because she's living in the past. Clinicians in the area of trauma know that traumatic experience is not only held in head and memory, but also is held in the body, which also remembers. This becomes even more complicated if the abuse or other trauma is ongoing. Elizabeth would likely be more sensitive to current abuse due to the abuse in the past. In fact, living out of the experience of abuse, the abuse itself becomes a lens through which she might see people and circumstances in her life. She would think, for instance, that it was impossible for Angela Martin to love her, not just because Angela was a stranger, but also because her core experience, both past and present and present, is one of rejection and fear. That's how she figures everybody's going to treat her. That's how she reacts to the people around her. And these experiences are not just in her head. Elizabeth carries the trauma of rejection, pain, and abuse in her body, in her bones. And this carrying is largely done outside of narrative because it may well not be even conscious. Trauma theorist Bessel van der Kolk discusses the way memory works with regard to trauma. Non-traumatic memory is often not very accurate or consistent. Think of how your accounts of what happened to you as a child differ from those of your siblings. Have you ever had that experience? You're sitting around talking with your family and, and you'll say, remember when? Well, no, that isn't how it happened, right? Hey. Traumatic memory, however, however, often works differently from that. There was a, there was a study done, uh, Van der Kolk and others, of uh, over 200 men who had been Harvard undergraduates between the years of 1939 to 1944. 
They did interviews with them immediately after World War II, and then they did another set of interviews with the same guys very recently. And uh, those who did not have traumatic reactions to World War II um, had modified their accounts of those years, robbing them of some of the horror over time. Those who were traumatized, though, if they could remember it at all, um, tended to recall events from the war in exactly the same way they had immediately following the war. It was like nothing had happened to that memory. It was just stored somewhere in them in exactly the way it was initially recorded. In addition, Vanderkolk discusses what happens when events are so horrifying that the system becomes overloaded, breaks down, and as a result of that, there's a disconnect between the rational and emotional memory systems. The events then aren't organized into word, narrative, and image. They are imprinted in fragmented sensory and emotional trances. Sometimes there's not any recall as the person dissociates or takes themselves out of the trauma initially in order to protect her or himself from its impact. Part of what this means is that traumatic memories are often not accessible to the intellect. And they're often not formed into narrative when trauma overwhelms the system. But they nonetheless intrude in the present, in bodily sensations and unconscious reenactments, traumatic memory remains frozen in time, often not accessible, and very far from narrative. Added to this, and likely crucial to understanding Elizabeth, we need to consider what's known as developmental trauma. Vanderkolk and others continue to study this phenomenon that asserts that the earliest experiences a human being has greatly affect their biological makeup and to an extent lay frameworks for how the person will engage in relationships and other tasks in their lives. It's well established that children who have not been given security and physical expression of love early on in their lives often have significant mental health issues by mid-childhood or early adolescence. Also, the child often fails to develop a healthy self-image as a person able to manage the circumstances of her or his life. Elizabeth might have been set up from failure for the very, from the very beginning by having been hardwired by the memory of abuse and neglect. Memory hardwired, lived, sometimes suppressed, present in the bones, is clearly at the heart of trauma. Dangerous memories. Just as trauma erupts and causes disorientation, immense grief, and disconnects the sufferer from his or her own body, from their agency and from other people, recovery is, in broad strokes, often a complex and nonlinear movement toward narrative, agency, and connection. Healing is to re-script one's life, bit by bit, creating a narrative that holds. And usually this happens in a space that holds the person. And now, we will look at the people gathered at the fence, holding Elizabeth up, the people on the bridge. I propose that this image reveals something about the church at worship and in its work in the world. Angela, in her prayer as she raced toward Elizabeth, revealed that she saw Elizabeth as connected and related to her. I believe that Angela was standing on God's ground of being, where all people are loved and are one body. The position of these people on the bridge, both their bodies and their dispositions, also could be called a glimpse into a future in which human beings hold one another 
toward eliminating through the power of the spirit the effects of trauma and suffering forever. Let's look at this group more closely. The stance of Angela and the people who showed up subsequently unified them into what looked to Lockie to be one, although at first he thought it was one riot. Each reached beyond the fence to hold on to Elizabeth, and many cried out spontaneously to God to help them. There was an audio tape of this that was posted after this happened, and you could hear, all you could hear were, oh God, help us, help us, hold on, oh God, help us, we love you, again and again in different voices and accents. Many, these people knew that by their own strength, they were not gonna be able to hold on to Elizabeth for very long, think of it. No one of them singly could have accomplished what they did as a body. Their actions were very physical. Their grip was personal, and I imagine pretty gritty at times. Elizabeth was slippery and sweaty, and I'm sure all those people that were standing there were as well. August in St. Paul is hot. Each of them, though, made a choice to come together. It was as if they were remembering something that had been hardwired into them. Johann Baptiste Metz talked about memory in a way that both quite different and quite similar to the way contemporary trauma theory talks about memory. He based much of his work on the contention that, quote, the church must understand itself and prove itself as the public witness and bearer of a dangerous memory of freedom. It is in faith that Christians actualize the memoria passionis mortis et resurrectionis Jesu Christi. They faithfully remember the testament of his love in which God's dominion among men and women appeared precisely in the fact that the dominion that human beings exercise over one another began to be pulled down, that Jesus declared himself to be on the side of the invisible ones, those who are rejected and oppressed, and in so doing announced to them God's coming dominion as the liberating power of an unconditional love. It is in this way a dangerous and liberating memory which badgers the present and calls it into question. Metz challenges the ways that the church has apparently forgotten the foundation upon which our faith stands. That God accompanied Jesus and accompanies us through death and promises life. On the bridge, we have the encounter between the dangerous memories that Elizabeth has that are erupting into her present, the memories of abuse, rejection, and abandonment that have become the message settled into her bones and bodily experience that she replays constantly. And we have that memory, and if you look at your handout on the side with the two arrows, it's a little picture of that encounter. And we have the dangerous memory of the church. Both kinds of dangerous memories challenge our sense of time. As mentioned earlier, Traumatic memory tends to not stay in the past, but to erupt into the present in an intrusive way. Dangerous memories of faith, according to Metz, erupt the future into the present by rooting us in the dangerous memory of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection as apocalyptic proclamation of our future life of salvation in the present. The people on the bridge, in their holding of Elizabeth, represent by their actions an embodied eruption of the memory of the church into the present.
So here we have it. Elizabeth, whose memory for trauma survivors, healing comes in, many times anyway, comes in the gradual little by little formation of a narrative. Okay. So she needs a narrative, her narrative for healing. And the church needs to remember our narrative to heal. Elizabeth needs and deserves to hear that memory of the future proclaimed in word and deed. Rather than hearing about some domesticated Hallmark card Jesus, who in some distant past was a really nice guy. Or worse, hearing a message of judgment that further reinforces her sense of self as entirely wrong or bad. She needs the church to be a place and a people who give her kind of a holding space as she struggles to create a new narrative of her own life, a narrative that can lead her through the twists and turns of Holy Saturday to widening glimpses of Easter. Not a hallmark Easter. No bunnies here. Forming a narrative is often crucial for trauma survivors. Preaching needs to be the coming to narrative of the dangerous memory of the church. Our faith must come to narrative in order to continue to hold and form our community in faith. Both word and bodily presence is necessary. We might not like to look at Elizabeth's anguish. It's uncomfortable. And it may recall feelings that we might not want to remember. Sometimes it's quite inconvenient to remember the Paschal mystery. Metz's dangerous memory seemed to subvert our structures of plausibility, he said. Such memories are like dangerous and incalculable visitants from the past. They are memories we have to take into account. Memories, as it were, with future content. The memory of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a message that we as preachers, in a certain sense, show into speech together with and for the Elizabeths in our world. Pauline images of the body are among, of the church's body, are among the oldest images that we have. The gifts of the spirit and the power of witness and memory connect deeply to the Pauline body. The image of the church's body of Christ was deepened and articulated anew in the Second Vatican Council. Our theological tradition affirms a connection between the wholeness and healing of one member of the body and the well-being of the whole. Mary Catherine Hilkert points out, using the work of Edward Skilibex, that precisely because the Christian message is a living tradition of grace, the mystery of God among us, it must be handed on through the lived experience of the community, as well as through word. Skilibex connects this healing to redemption and salvation. Julia Feeder, in her doctoral dissertation from here at Notre Dame, very recently actually, articulates his position well. Christian salvation involves the healing of the whole human person. As Skilibex puts it, Christian salvation cannot be simply the salvation of souls. It must be healing, the making whole of the whole woman and the whole man the person in all his or her aspects, and the society in which the person lives. Thus, Christian salvation includes ecological, social, and political aspects, although it is not exhausted by them. Although Christian salvation is more than that, it is at least that. As he explains in another text, the comprehensive meaning of salvation can be garnered etymologically. 
The root of the word salus, or salvation, is connected with sanitas, health, with being whole or with integrity. Therefore, a Christian salvation concerns the broad health of the individual person in his or her social context. The trauma victim is in need of salvific healing, not just spiritually, but also physically, relationally, and politically. The lived witness of the church, then, is not only concerned with the well-being of individuals and of the whole, but is also somehow connected to the working out of salvation that is our memory of in the, of the future. Active and narrative witness and proclamation are both crucial. At some point, Elizabeth must have decided to stop struggling. I have to think that if she had continued to struggle and if she'd pushed off from the bridge with her feet, those people wouldn't have been able to hold on to her. At some moment, she must have stopped struggling, even if she still didn't believe that her life had value, even if she was still carrying in her body the terrible suffering she'd experienced at the hands of her mother. At some point, part of her allowed the community that was gathered there to be with her on some level. And at some level, the group on the bridge created a space where she could live, a place where she was between life and death. Trauma healing for a victim survivor is a mixture of her or his own agency as it comes back, usually just a little at a time, and of relationship with other people. It's rare for a trauma sufferer to be able to heal in isolation. And yet it's also true that some approaches to healing trauma appear to want to fix the person. Never works. These can, in fact, validate the trauma survivor's lack of agency and in the wake of traumatic events. The people on the bridge couldn't fix Elizabeth. They held her, though, until a future possibility presented itself. Her agency must have come into play sometime as they all hung there together. That said, most of the trauma literature agrees that there's no stronger element in healing from trauma than relationship. In fact, if you look at all of the different uh, theoretical approaches to the healing of trauma, uh, the number one in all of them, every single one of them, is the, uh, if you're in a therapeutic setting, is the therapeutic alliance or the connection that develops between the person and the, the therapist. That's number one and ahead by quite a bit. Um, healthy, mutual, and compassionate relationships serve as a corrective to the violence and dislocation caused by trauma and can create a space where a trauma survivor can more often inhabit the present than the tortured and traumatic past. Frequently, as a mental health professional, I get, uh, I get referrals from um, pastoral agents, pastors, pastoral associates, others. And once in a while, one of them expresses relief at getting the person the help that they need. It can feel like, yep, they're yours now. Now I've done what I can to get him, and he or she is out of my hands. Therapy can be really important, even crucial in some situations, to the healing of trauma. But that doesn't mean that the faith community is of less importance. This is key. We have to know at church, that as church, that we have a role to play in people's healing together as a community. Relationship helps trauma survivors come back to life to engage in the difficult path of healing and to gradually rescript their lives. I remember a couple I worked with some time back in the parish. They were dealing with a, a health crisis and were kind of coming, they were coming through that. And, and a leader in our parish community invited them as a couple to participate in the marriage preparation ministry in our parish. And they were kind of, well, I don't know, but they sort of convinced them and they came in they started working in the ministry, and gradually over time, I could see how they formed friendships with some of the other couples who were involved. 
I heard from them and I could actually even just witness the difference that made to them. Just being incorporated and knitted into that ministry, that part of our community, really, uh, really contributed a lot to their, to their healing. So the people on the bridge reveal something about church. And they reveal the something more that's present after trauma, even as the pain lingers. In a certain sense, those people came to recognize themselves through the lens of Elizabeth's suffering. The comments of the ones holding her after she was taken to the hospital were things like, we are actually one human family. We can do something different from the violence and division to which we've become accustomed. One might see that they acted out of the power of their own dangerous memory. There's something else. There's another part of this story that's important. Three weeks to the day, to the day before Elizabeth climbed that fence, in the exact physical location, there was a major confrontation between the St. Paul police force and demonstrators demanding justice for the shooting of an unarmed black man by a white police officer. Twelve police officers were wounded in the confrontation. The contrast between the two scenes is enormous. The image of the church in the space of threatened violence, witnessing to the possibility of community where it appeared that the fragmentation of violence had made that impossible is compelling. The very nature of the church de demands that witness. Moving to my third focus, the one that begins at the bridge and the fence. There's more to the story of the community holding her up in her desperation. The more defies easy expression, and yet I believe forms the basis for our preaching and proclamation. Theologian Shelley Rambo, kind of an unfortunate last name given what she writes about, uh, argues that rather than being a problem for Christian theology to contend with, trauma is a lens through which the church can see ourselves and reevaluate our theological commitments. I concur with her and believe that there is much insight for preachers in theological reflection on trauma and trauma healing. Rambo opens up the essentially wordless space of what she refers to as middle ground, that, as she expresses it, the what remains after trauma. That space in between death and life that isn't quite death, but isn't quite life. There's kind of an overlapping space there. She concludes that the what remains in that space, in the church's story, is love. She uses remains in her work primarily out of uh, the John's Gospel's frequent use of menane, meaning to remain, throughout the Gospel to refer both to the disciples remaining after Jesus' death and to the paraclete who will remain with them, making them witnesses. I'd like to call your attention right now to the other side of the handout, the two columns here. I just want you to see how this is laid out in Rambo's argument. And maybe in looking at this, to recognize the value of reflecting on these two stories together. Okay, so we've got the experience of trauma. And then we have the crucifixion. Okay. 
after trauma, there's this, often this hopeless persistence of death space. Hans Urs von Balthasar writes about the time between the crucifixion and Easter Sunday. And he does this comp very compellingly in an Easter, uh, a Holy Saturday homily that he wrote. I think it was, it's pretty old now, but it's extant. And it's really got some powerful Holy Saturday image. And he develops these points there. He talks about Jesus descending into hell. He talks about Jesus being in hell and being dead, being there in that in-between space. He refers to it, though, uh, along with the Johannine author, as um, the, the body of Jesus on the cross in John is, is kind of an um, interesting alive dead because of the, the lance in the side that brings out not only blood but water, too, water having been a symbol of life throughout the, uh, throughout the gospel. Okay, so... So he talks about um, this Jesus who has been killed, who's been crucified, he's going down to hell, he's down in hell, he's in a space that exceeds death but is not yet life. He's in the middle. Okay. The trauma survivor is alive but not alive, still living in the horror, but somehow alive, you know, um, and then remains. For the trauma survivor, death remains in that space, along with life, sort of. And in our theological story, death remains. Balthazar talks about the spirit as remaining and as witnessing Jesus in hell. Okay. The imagery, look up this homily. I think it's called... Um, We've walked, we walk where there is no path. Okay. Something like that, okay. And uh, at first, Balthazar says that the Holy Spirit, or implies that the Holy Spirit strings a thin little string across the abyss of hell for Jesus to get across to the resurrection. And then he kind of backtracks and says, no, no, um, actually Jesus is in the abyss in the place that's impossible to cross through, but that what the spirit does is hand him the string. Okay. So there's a witness. There's a witness in this place. For the trauma survivor, the witness could take place in a variety of ways. There's a space created, right? It might be with a therapist. Hopefully it's also with a faith community. There's a safe space to feel and engage the trauma story, other aspects of life. It's a, it's a middle space of witness in which something begins to emerge that survives death. Probably not a huge triumphal blast, but something, something, a trickle, Balthazar says, a pulse. Life is redefined in this space where life and death are mixed together. Then as that continuing witness happens, there's an emergence, not in a linear way, but in a gradual back and forth circular spiral way, maybe, of that persistence of love in the midst of death, the imaginative sensing of something else and something more. That something that allows a trauma survivor to begin to re-script her life. That something that then knows resurrection in the mix, that knows the love that remains. The always mixed life and death of Elizabeth and community is where we continue to construct this story. 
to bring to lived witness and narrative articulation what was perhaps in the first instance wordless. We preach from the bridge, from the place where death and life are inseparable and sometimes indistinguishable. We speak quietly, perhaps gently, and not always triumphantly, a message of the love that remains. The spirit who hands us a rope to constitute a bridge where there is, in fact, no way across. And we do this simultaneously from our in-between spaces in life and from the narrative structure of our faith and story of salvation, magnificently expressed in the Eucharistic liturgy. As I've said, preaching itself lives in the intersection of the dangerous memories of trauma and the dangerous memory of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Preaching brings to awareness that crossroad. And now we come back to narrative. Metz points to the necessity of narrative based on the very premise that our whole story of salvation has a narrative structure, beginning with creation. He reflects on the way that stories need to be told in order to bring out their sacramental dimension and to illustrate that. And in order to illustrate that, he, he uses a story from Martin Buber. Maybe some of you have heard this. There was a, a very crippled old man, old monk, who told the story of another monk, a monk who sang and danced when he preached. The crippled monk in the telling of the story got so caught up in his memory of this man who sang and danced in his preaching that he got up and he moved and he danced. The narrative worked in him, the memory worked in him in such a way that the impossible became real. This deep engagement with memory and story can transfigure a preacher in the spirit. And this deep engagement is what our communities need and deserve in our preaching. They demand something other than platitudes and quick fixes. But what happens when the church itself is traumatized and living out of a trauma response? Trauma can disrupt the life of the church too. We certainly have ample historical evidence of this beginning with the very first Christians gathering in community in the wake of the crucifixion. We've seen some of that disruption in our time with the collective trauma that we are living in the clergy sexual abuse crisis. In my archdiocese in St. Paul in Minneapolis, we're selling off all of the buildings of our central corporation right now. We're in the process of more closing. Um, we're still in bankruptcy court. And I don't know if we're ever going to be the same again. On the other hand, though, over the last couple of years, I've wondered if there's some kind of maybe previously unimagined life that's starting to emerge for us if we pay attention to it. We'll never be the same again. But that's because in the spirit we get to reimagine our local church. And in fact, trauma is making us do that. We need to remember this now more than ever. Rambo argues that the middle space and the spirit who remains can offer new possibilities right in the midst of the pain of trauma, whether that be individual or collective. Okay now, 
what does all of this actually look like in homily? What does this look like in preaching? I think it's really important quick to, to talk a little bit about the liturgical context. There's a lot of research right now on the connection of liturgy to trauma. Much of it focuses on the role of healing and relationship and ritual. Because trauma itself resides in our bodies, ritual can be a place for healing. As the ritual movements engage our bodies in mystery and communion with one another and with God, Marsha Mount Shoup and Mary McClintock Fulkerson, when discussing the trauma of racism, note that Eucharistic celebration is the occasion of the remembering of Christ's body. That through ritual action, God enacts in and with us the coming together of our body broken by so many things. They ask, how can we remember the body of Christ if we deny the wounds of the body itself? Truly tending to the wounds of the body the memories that continue to diminish and distort the integrity of our narratives will mean opening our memory and our deep connections to transformative possibility, and they continue. Remembering is an embodied dynamic. We come to Eucharist to remember, to relive our story, and to remember, remember the body of Christ. Liturgy embodies the already and not yet of Christian identity and community. Trauma reveals and conceals the unavoidable disruption, aspirational integration, and strange conflation of past, present, and future. And the homily is part of the liturgy itself and has a really crucial role in bringing to awareness what it means to celebrate together. I've got four specific implications here for preaching through the lens of trauma. Hey, first, preaching witnesses and speaks from middle spaces where death and life exist together. Hence, it has to go deep and doesn't race to resurrection. Binary presentations of death and life do not do justice to our tradition or to the biblical witness. We may rush to resurrection out of the sincere desire to preach a message of hope. But authentic hope, real hope, emerges gradually, often in twists and turns, and so many times right in those in-between lands in the shadow of death. Preaching that denies or simply glosses over the abandoned wastelands terror and ambiguity inherent in life in our body and bones cannot offer a full account of the gospel. As Rambo remarks, suffering itself is not the source of redemption. Instead, she writes, it is the persistence of love in the midst of suffering. Preaching is a living into the power of the text and of life and is rendered as what Rambo calls an embodied practice of imagination. She asserts that imagining is kind of a process of connection. To exercise imagination is paradoxically to conceive of what's unimaginable. And that leads to my second implication about preaching. Preachers who are sensitive to trauma are in a continual process of learning to be witness to the trauma they carry in their own bones, we carry in our own bones as well as that of the people in our parishes and society. A preacher, though, doesn't have to be completely integrated to be aware of the effects of trauma. Here is where pastoral life connects strongly to preaching. And here's where the stories you hear and the suffering you accompany form you as a preacher. We have to see it in order to proclaim it. The Triduum of 1988 stands out in my mind. I was in one of the remote farming communities that I was serving as pastoral minister in the parish of Guadalupe, Diocese of Matamoros, Mexico. On Good Friday, we took a large crucifix that belonged to one of the families in this little village, and we propped it up on a chair. It was, it was big, and it wasn't just a divino rostro. 
It was the whole bloodied and bruised body of Jesus. We set it up on the chair, and then on either side of it, we put a, a, a small blackboard and some chalk. We listened to the passion proclaimed. And then people spoke in groups in tears about the suffering of Jesus. And then we talked about the sufferings in the community, the kidnappings, the rising interest rates, the low prices for crops, the immigration of their young people to the United States, family violence. People wrote them all down on the blackboards. The sufferings of Jesus mixed right in with the sufferings of their community right then. There was a, there was a real energy, a, a something of life in that space. And I'll never, as long as I live, forget the reflection of their faces in the Easter fire. If we allow ourselves to listen deeply and to learn how to do this without carrying our parishioner's trauma too heavily within ourselves, we can witness in our words and embodiment to the depth of suffering and trauma in our community and to what remains. It's not always a comfortable way to walk, though it's important to acknowledge that. Whether we're completely aware of it or not, we're usually preaching out of or from our engagement or non-engagement with trauma. Even if it's completely unconscious, that's kind of where we're coming from. Okay. I used to co-host clergy luncheons with my archbishop once a year. They were for pastors to come and, and uh, have a dialogue with us about domestic violence in the community. And usually when I was starting my part of the uh, presentation, I would ask um, the people who have heard a domestic violence story in their parish community to raise their hand. And there were always some guys who in 20 years or more of parish ministry had never heard a story of domestic violence. And so then I would spend the rest of the presentation, among other things, helping them to see that that wasn't because domestic violence wasn't happening in their parish communities. There's a certain disposition in word and embodiment that encourages people to come forward and tell their stories. And many are drawn to do so by the preaching of their pastoral agents. If we're attentive to the illustrations we use in our homily foci, if we're courageous enough to preach directly about things like domestic violence, if we embody compassion, if we're honest about not having all the answers, and if we express our commitment and that of the parish community to being a healing presence, we will hear stories. In the late 1940s, there was a preacher named Harry Emerson Fosdick. He was the first of the great preachers of Riverside Church in New York City. And he discovered the close connection between the pastoral listening that he did and the sermons that he preached on Sundays. He wrote was at the time a very controversial article with a very long title called Personal Counseling and Preaching. An understanding of personal counseling can give tone, direction, and significance to preaching with which our generation critically needs. That's the name of it. In which he noted that uh, good preaching had to take into account what was happening to people. And clearly his approach was appreciated. He noted that the first time he focused on what the gospel had to say to the brokenness and fear that he heard articulated in his church, he had 14 people lined up at his office the next morning, ready to tell their stories. Fosdick was definitely onto something, and it's arguable that his work opened the way for more rigorous theological as well as ecclesial work in the area of preaching and suffering. Third, preaching that accounts for trauma demonstrates awareness of what is happening to us collectively, both locally and globally. For instance, the parish that I serve now, Santo Rosario, 
uh, as pastoral associate and where I have my clinical practice, more than half of our parishioners are undocumented immigrants from Latin American countries throughout the world. We've become aware of the many ways that the heightened fear, that the current public rhetoric, uh, the effect that that rhetoric is having on our parishioners, uh, both individually in some cases, and then also just as a, as a parish group, there's something, there's like a somber blanket that's been placed on our parish community because of what's happening right now in our public discourse. Okay. Collective, collective trauma um, doesn't only affect undocumented immigrants, but it affects all of us. Their situation affects all of us in the body of Christ. Implicitly and explicitly, our preaching has to account for this. Preaching has the potential to ground us in who we are as Christ's body, even as we live in uncertainty and fear. Sometimes it's easy to lose track of what's happening on larger scales, though, because right, what's right in front of us is so demanding. Isn't that right? Related to this and forth, we are not only the body of Christ when we're together at Eucharist, as Elizabeth and the others on the bridge attest. We remain so everywhere we are in the world. Preaching that is attentive to what's happening, to the both completely concrete and timeless struggles in the present and in history constitute a crucial aspect of preaching. We do not preach in a bubble only relating to our parish. Solidarity, not only with our own parishioners but with the world, is key. We stand with Elizabeth and the people on the bridge. As preachers and in the spirit, we have the privilege to speak the unspeakable, to witness to the apparently impossible, and to put words to the grief inside our bones. Death persists. Love remains. Can we witness to it? <laughs>